All right, good morning. Welcome to another week of our being scattered together. Could you even believe uh, when you heard Christabel say week 40? Um, unbelievable how long it is we've been scattered together. Um, man, I miss you. Uh, particularly on a Sunday like this as we head into our Christmas celebrations coming up this week and to just see the emptiness of this place. Yeah, I got Christabel here helping me film, but... Um, I wish so many of you could be here, and I'm sorry that you aren't. I'm trusting that despite our distance, that God's Spirit, as we've been saying, is going to hold us together, and that the spirit of why we're celebrating right now will continue to inspire us and bring joy to our hearts, despite the fact that we can't celebrate together in this place. It's also sad to me that I can't have you here today because it's the first time speaking on the new pulpit. Um, I'm going to share some uh, pictures with uh, you guys this afternoon just to show you the amazing work that uh, Ken has done with kind of a bit of a sanctuary refresh. Maybe you didn't even notice, but like the whole thing's been painted. It's so much brighter in here and just a little bit of, of update and refresh for the sanctuary. Um, when you get back in here, you'll, you'll see it and you'll just be amazed at the, how much it brightens up the room. So Ken continues to just bless us and, and take care of these spaces so well. So uh, thank you, Ken. Uh, we're going to come to a time now where we're going to dig into a passage of God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, Bible app with you, if you would turn to Matthew's Gospel, first book in the New Testament, chapter 2, and today we'll be beginning at verse 13. We're going to finish out the chapter. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, Matthew writes this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, uh, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's God's word. Let me just pray for us quickly, ask God's blessing on this time spent here, and then we'll dig in here. Uh, Spirit of God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reveals you to us. Uh, and as we look at this passage today and look at your faithfulness through history, 
uh, to accomplish all these things in the coming of Jesus. I just pray uh, for your blessing on this time. I pray that your spirit would give us an open ears, open hearts, open minds to receive what it is you want to show us, what you want to reveal today. And I pray that you would accomplish the purpose for which you are sending out this word today. You tell us you do not send out your word in vain. It does accomplish the purpose for which you send it. God, accomplish that in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, whether it is safe to say or sad to say or probably some combination of both, the reality is that there's likely not a person listening to this message right now who has not to some degree and in some way experienced the pain of a broken promise. Yeah? Anyone? Anyone not experienced that? Now, of course, that, that's not to say that every broken promise carries the same amount of weight, uh, that, that it causes the same amount or even the same type of pain. I mean, the, the pain of a broken promise for freedoms from a government or for faithfulness from a spouse is a pain that's devastating, whereas the pain of a broken promise for Amazon delivery dates is more of a pain that's just inconvenient. But, but the reality is, either way, the fact remains we live in a world right now and, and have throughout history where the distance between a promise made and a promise fulfilled is a distance that very regularly remains untraveled. And I mention all that as we continue on in our teaching series now this morning through the Gospel of Matthew entitled Kingdom Come for the simple reason that one of the things it seems like Matthew really, really wants us to know, he really wants to communicate to us through his gospel in general and in chapter 1 and 2 of his gospel in particular is the trustworthiness of God to fulfill every promise that he's ever made. He can be trusted to keep and fulfill every promise he's ever made. It's one of the reasons, actually, that I keep referring to Matthew's gospel as a gospel of fulfillment, because one of the things you see Matthew doing here again and again is referencing these promises of God spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament and revealing how, in the coming of Jesus, God has traveled every time that distance between promise made and promise fulfilled. Which, which sounds amazing, which, which sounds uh, great, until you begin to try to look back at some of those Old Testament texts that Matthew quotes in order to demonstrate God's fulfillment of his promise in the coming of Jesus. Because, well, with some of those texts, the, the fulfillment is obvious. Like we saw that in the message of the angel to Joseph, that uh, this child that, that was born and coming to Mary was of divine origin, that, that she had not been unfaithful. And then Matthew was showing us how that was the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophet Isaiah all the way back in history that a virgin would conceive. So, so that's great. Check. Okay, we've got one-to-one comparison here. But, yeah, when, <laughs> when you come to try and cross-check any, any of these three fulfillment texts that Matthew lists in our passage today, what you quickly see is that, well, they're not even referring to Jesus in any way. I mean, you're going to be doing a lot of this. Like, is that the right, did, did he list the right passage? Like, you're thinking to think there's some kind of error because they're, they're not, they don't seem to be talking about Jesus at all. In fact, the, the promise supposedly fulfilled in verse 23, that the Christ will be a Nazarene, is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. 
Nazareth as a city that's not even mentioned in the entire Old Testament. So, uh, like, what, what do we do with that? What, what are we supposed to do with that? Because on the one hand, if Matthew is like a great storyteller, but he's just making up all these prophecy fulfillments, then really his entire gospel is called into question, right? It's at best historical fiction, something on the level of like a Dan Brown or a Diana Gabaldon novel. Or, on the other hand, if his gospel is some kind of secret code book that, that only like gurus and people with lots of letters at the end of their name that they can understand, well then his, his gospel is interesting but completely inaccessible to us. Well, the good news, I've got good news for you, uh, Matthew's gospel is neither of those things. It is neither fiction nor inaccessible. Matthew has been painting a picture of God's faithfulness throughout history right from the beginning of his gospel. And what I want to show you here today, this end of, these, this end of chapter 2, these passages, is that that's exactly what he's continuing to do in the closing of his book, in the closing of this chapter. He's continuing to show the faithfulness of God to keep his promises and fulfill them throughout history. And the reason we can trust that, and we'll dig more into this as we go, but first of all, is because even though these promise fulfillments texts don't appear to be, they don't all appear to be as straightforward as the others, uh, the reason for that is only because in some cases what Matthew is doing is listing a different kind of fulfillment. And we're going to, hopefully, you'll understand as we dig into this, you'll understand much more what I mean by that when we look at our passage this morning. The second reason that we can trust Matthew's gospel is describing the faithfulness of God to keep his promises throughout history is because of something Matthew Green highlights in his commentary about Matthew's gospel, saying this, that Matthew says, God, uh, uh, or, or sorry, Matthew makes it plain that God works through two things, both surprise and continuity to bring about his purposes, or we could say his promises. He goes on, the story of Jesus is utterly continuous with Abraham, with David, and with the whole history of the chosen people of God, but it also bristles with surprise. Perhaps this is to encourage us to expect God to be working in our lives steadily and continuously, making sense of our past history, but also to be on the lookout for God's surprises in our lives, ready to grasp them and follow through on their implications when they come. And actually, I want to take that same uh, grid of, of continuity and surprise to look at these three different story vignettes that Matthew lists for us in our passage today and see how they are both the natural outworking of God's redemptive history that he's been unfolding this whole time, that's the continuity part, as well as how they are, many of them, a different kind of fulfillment than perhaps many of us then or today were even expecting. That's the surprise part. But, but all together with the point of, the, the, the reason for doing this, to, to continue to develop and to see that right from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, what he's been doing. He's, this is God revealing in this book, that this, this book that we are learning from today, that he can be trusted. Learning that God can be trusted to keep his promises. He's showing God's faithfulness to keep them. And if we can trust that he can keep these promises, we can trust that he can keep any promise that he's made to us today. That's the point. And, and, that, and that although one of the things I think he's also showing us, because even though his promises may not be fulfilled in, in the ways that, that we might do it, 
and the ways that we expect it to happen, in fact, rarely does that happen, we can also see that whatever work God begins, as Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6, he is always faithful to complete. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage there in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Follow along with me as we examine Matthew's continued evidence of the faithfulness of God to keep and to fulfill his promises in the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Okay, so let's look first of all at this this first promise fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. So if you look back with me at verse 13, uh, we see Matthew continuing the story that we looked at last week about the Magi, these Gentile court astrologers who come in search of the one who's been born, the king of the Jews, in order to worship him, Uh, a search as we saw that got Herod and all Jerusalem all worked up in the process. And so after these magi, they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they depart for their home country another way. We read this in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord, that's the magi, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy them. Okay, so then, and what's Joseph's response to that? We see. Verse 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, we already know from back in chapter 1, this is not the first time that an angel has come to Joseph with some important information. Uh, the first time was about the divine origin of Mary's child, but, but now the angel has come with news about Herod. Herod's plan to search for the child and destroy him. And what's really beautiful to see is that in both of these instances already, we see every time Joseph obeys what he's told immediately. He hears the message and he obeys immediately, which tells us at least two things. First of all, that Joseph really believes that these angelic messages that he's receiving through these dreams is being, he's being given God's divine direction, which he needs to be obedient to. He, he really believes that's what he's doing, and so he follows immediately. Second thing we see is that in this instance in particular, it shows us that all the violent, monstrous things that Dr. Rapsky told us about Herod last week, about the kind of cruel, just horrifically wicked and and, and highly paranoid king that Herod was, that that information was known by everybody. It was known by all, right? Because you see that when Joseph hears this information, he doesn't need to think about it. He doesn't need to like phone a friend and be like, I don't know what to do. Have you got this angelic message? I'm trying to, I mean, moving's a lot of work. I don't know if I have the time. Like he's just like, no, he picks up that very night and leaves. He gets out of Dodge, right? Why? Because he understood this to be exactly the kind of thing that Herod would do if he felt his throne was threatened in any way. He was like, oh, no, no, that's totally what he'd do. Let's get out of here. And so, thus far anyways, it's been all a very natural, continuous movement in the history of redemption. As Mary and Joseph, uh, they've returned to Joseph's ancestral home uh, where this census is being taken in order for the baby to be born in Bethlehem as it was prophesied that he would be born there. But then, through the course of these historical events, God's now coordinating the events of history in such a way that Jesus would be protected from being murdered by Herod when he discovers, he becomes aware that, that this baby has been born. And having uh, Joseph and his family flee to Egypt until the death of Herod, which was somewhere around 4 AD. But, Now, here's where the story begins to become surprising. 
Because as you see in the second half of verse 15, Matthew goes on to say, this was to fulfill, this, this leaving, fleeing to Egypt, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So what's that about? Well, let's look at it. Now, like, we don't have time this morning to go into like, some great expansive detail about this passage that Matthew is quoting, which actually comes from uh, the book of Hosea chapter 11. But as I already mentioned before, if you did go back there, or if you go back there later today, what you're going to see is Hosea writing nothing about Jesus or a Messiah and everything about God's faithfulness to deliver his people Israel, his son, out of slavery in Egypt. That's what Hosea is talking about. So as I began to ask earlier, what do we do with that? I mean, Matthew's saying this, this Jesus coming and then fleeing here to Egypt, this fulfills that promise but there's nothing there. Like, what do we do? Because this is clearly not a direct one-to-one promise fulfillment. Like we saw with, the, for instance, like the virgin conceiving. But okay, so if Matthew's gospel is neither historical fiction nor inaccessible code, well, what other type of fulfillment might Matthew be referring to here or have in mind here? Great question. Great question. Well, if you look at the word fulfill in the Greek in particular, it's a word that means to complete something, to fill up something, to satisfy the expectations of a contract or a promise. Okay, which something like that, a definition like that fits easily with the kind of one-to-one predictive promise fulfillment like we saw with a, you have a promise of a virgin's going to conceive and then a virgin conceives. Okay, that fits well. It also fits with another way that Jesus uses that term when he's speaking in his Sermon on the Mount later in Matthew 5, and he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They're describing how Jesus in his coming would would bring the law, bring the whole sacrificial system, all that to its completion by, by obeying the law perfectly, which no one else had been able to do, and by giving his life as the final ultimate sacrifice for sin, doing away with the sacrificial system. He has filled it up. He has completed it in his coming. But, listen, that definition that we just read also fits with an understanding of Scripture where various people, where various events in Israel's history serve as types, serve as analogies or signs pointing ahead to something greater than themselves, which is still to come. You see this, for example, in the life of Abraham, when he is called to go to the mountain and sacrifice Isaac, and then just when he's about to do that, God provides the ram in the bushes, the the substitute that he can put to death in his son's place. That's a a real historical event that took place, and yet it also serves as a type as a sign pointing ahead to something still yet to be fulfilled, something still yet to be completed in a greater sense when God will sacrifice His Son as a substitute for all humanity, where He now, God's Son is sent and He now dies in our place, just as the ram died in the place of Isaac. And I believe it's in this third sense of fulfillment that Matthew is referring here to Uh, This particular use of of Hosea's reference of the people of Israel as God's son that he led out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land as a type or a sign of God's son, in about two years' time anyway, leaving Egypt and returning to that same promised land after Herod's death. 
think that's the connection. Again, this is not predictive fulfillment. So you're not going to look in the prophecy in the Old Testament and find some prophecy that says the Messiah is going to flee to Egypt as a refugee for two years and then return, come back to Israel. No, instead, this is a promise fulfillment that Matthew's thinking of. Uh, he, he's thinking of that event in history, that pivotal, life-changing event in Israel's history where the people are, of God are delivered, the exodus, where they're delivered out of slavery in Egypt, they come to the promised land. He's saying that that is filled up. That promise finds its ultimate completion in Jesus leaving Egypt when his family had fled to and then returning to Israel to begin his life and his earthly ministry for which he had come. He has come to, to begin his own new covenant, to begin his own new promise. And that's what Matthew's showing us here, that that Old Testament prophecy is filled up and comes to his completion now as Jesus comes, comes out of Egypt in this type, kind of an, an, like an analogy kind of way in order to fill up this promise to its fullness. Craig Blomberg summarizes this first promise fulfillment text for our passage like this. He says, Matthew sees striking parallels in the patterns of God's activities in history in ways he cannot attribute to coincidence. Just as God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with them, so again is God bringing the Messiah who fulfills the hopes of Israel out of Egypt as he is about to inaugurate his new covenant. Okay, so that's the way Matthew's first promise fulfillment text in our passage continues to reveal the faithfulness of God to keep his promises to us, not not by inventing false fulfillments nor by speaking in code, but simply by making use of the fullness of that word's meaning and describing for us a different kind of fulfillment. That's what's going on here. Now, okay, that was a lot. Everybody just, I don't know, like stretch it out. Walk around the living room, fill up your coffee, just take a break. We've covered a lot of ground there. We did a lot of groundwork. Um, But here's the good news. Having put that foundation in place, kind of understanding how this works now, it's going to make these last two promise fulfillment texts, I trust, much easier for us to understand and access. So we looked at the fulfillment of God's promise to initiate his full ultimate exodus out of slavery, not not from a, a nation, but from sin and death. In the coming of Jesus from this Hosea prophecy, the next promise fulfillment text Matthew wants us to see being fulfilled in Jesus' coming comes from the prophet Jeremiah. So let's look next at Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel weeping for her children. Look with me now at verse 16. So we leave the Egypt narrative for a minute, and now we turn to the story of the Magi, which concluded in verse 12. We now get to see how Herod responds when he finds out he's being tricked and that the Magi don't want to join him in his murderous plot. And his response, according to history, is classic Herod. Just classic Herod. Matthew writes this, verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained by the wise men. So again, it's awful and horrific, but there there is continuity in the historical movement as wicked kings continue to act, act like wicked, murderous kings. And God, once again, orchestrates the events of history in such a way that his infant Messiah is protected. But there's also a surprise once again. 
as Matthew, now quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, reveals, there's something more going on in this story on the surface than we can see, pointing to the faithfulness of God and fulfilling his promises. And so at the slaughter of these Hebrew boys, Matthew goes on in verse 17 to write, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. What? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, if Matthew is just quoting some Old Testament poetry there in verse 18 of the weeping anguish of Hebrew mothers at the death of their sons, then this feels like nothing more than a fitting tribute to to the death of innocent children at the hand of a monstrous king. But rather than just quoting a sorrowful soliloquy, Matthew says, no, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. So there's something about this that fulfills what was spoken in that prophecy. What? Now again, we don't have time to go into really deep look at that passage in Jeremiah that Matthew's quoting from, but obviously, from Matthew, something about that Jeremiah description is pointing to the fulfillment, in, in one of those three senses we talked about, of a promise of God in the coming of Jesus. Well, when you go back to Jeremiah 31, 15, you see that the context of that quote that Matthew is drawing from is the mothers of Israel, personified by Rachel, who was the mother of, or sorry, who was the wife of Jacob, mourning as their children are carried away into exile in Babylon. She has no comfort in ever seeing them again alive. That's what's going on there. And yet, even in that context of that devastation for God's people, God's promise through the prophet in the very next verses is both the return of her children from exile and the promise of a new covenant being established with God's people through the coming of his Messiah. So it's almost as though Matthew is By picking this passage up, he's hinting at that promise of hope, even in the midst of this devastation for these families in Bethlehem. Uh, uh, The history tells us that the size of that place around that time, this this could have been anywhere from 10 to 30 boys put to death. But there's he's he's kind of hinting at hope, even in the midst of this devastation. But then more than that, even. Where else do you know of a story in Israel's history where they are enslaved by a wicked ruler who put all their sons to death except one who happened to be hidden and escaped and then that one son leads God's people to freedom out of that place and restored a renewed covenant with him? Moses, right? Okay, which means for Matthew, he once again sees that pivotal event in Israel's history under Moses, the Exodus, pointing ahead to the fulfillment of God's promise to bring about ultimate, everlasting hope and restoration for God's people in Jesus, even in the midst of their present unimaginable suffering. It's pointing ahead to what the kind of freedom this Messiah will bring. Again, these children have been put to death, but what will this Messiah bring? He will bring freedom even from death itself. It's a promise that is filled up, brought to completion in the coming of Jesus. Okay, so we've seen the fulfillment in this broader sense of God's promises to these first promise fulfillment texts that Matthew presents to us. The last one uh, is going to be easiest to locate because, as I said, uh, there is no promise in the Old Testament that God's promised Messiah would be from Nazareth, but that also makes it a little bit more tricky to understand, at least initially. 
So tell you what, let's, let's use that same grid of continuity and surprise one last time to see if we can understand what Matthew wanted us to see when we look at this final promise fulfillment, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. So in these final verses of our passage, we, we switch back once more to Joseph and his family, now literally called out of Egypt to return to Israel, now that, quote, those who sought the child's life are dead. And so history continues on once again according to God's direction. That is marching forward, this time with the transfer of power from Herod upon his death to not one but three sons, forcing the young family to have to abandon hope of settling in Judah where Archelaus, uh, an equally wicked son of Herod, is ruling, and to settle instead in the region of Galilee and their old hometown of Nazareth, where Herod Antipas is ruling instead. The surprising part is, as ever, the significance that Matthew draws from that settlement in Nazareth and the way he says that it, too, fulfills a promise of God that was spoken through the prophets. Now, we've already mentioned that that this promise of Jesus being a Nazarene is, is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. But the thing that we need to see, notice, first of all, is Matthew knows that. Uh, he does, he's aware of that, and that's why he doesn't quote any specific Old Testament passage, but simply refers to this as what was spoken by the prophets, which tells us already that what Matthew has in mind here is not a specific promise, but, but a, a, general summary, a, a summary of a general theme. What was that theme fulfilled by Jesus settling in Nazareth instead of Jerusalem? Well, very simply, it was a theme regarding how the Messiah would be completely obscure, would be humble, poor, would be despised and rejected, actually. That's the theme that Matthew is referring to. How do we know that? Well, just a little quick history lesson. First thing is to say that in Jesus' day, um, first of all, people didn't have last names. No one was given last names, and so you were named either by your father, by his profession, or where you were from. So we had got Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus, son of the carpenter, or Jesus of Nazareth. So that's where that's coming. Fair enough, okay, so we're like, all right, I got that, but, but how, does, how does that mean that Jesus is despised and raised in obscurity? Well, the answer to that can be seen even in Nathaniel's sneering response in John's gospel to Philip's claim that they had found the Messiah. Philip comes up to Nathaniel and says, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, to which Nathaniel incredulously replies, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? For you see, in Jesus' day, the town of Nazareth was considered to be the most backwater, Hickville, hillbilly, nowheresville ever. In our parents' day, they would have said something like, it was so small they didn't even have a gas station or a single traffic light. In our day, we'd say something like, they didn't even have a single Starbucks. Uh, it was just nothing. There was, it was just like you blink as you're driving and you've already gone through it. It's, it's that kind of smallness. And so, as Michael Green notes, uh, if you have someone like Jesus of Bethlehem, that, that would have suggested overtones of royalty, of, of messianic majesty being from the royal city. But Jesus of Nazareth carried with it an overtones of contempt. Saying, referring to someone as being from Nazareth was a term of, term of derision. I'm trying really hard not to offend anybody by thinking of some city to name right now, so I'm just going to leave it at, in that day, 
Calling someone being from Nazareth was considered a term of derision and just obscurity. Which means, so listen, when he says he will be called a Nazarene, what Matthew's actually referring to is the way the Messiah will be seen as someone born into complete obscurity. He will be despised, rejected. And that's a theme, if you know your Old Testament, that we see throughout the prophets about the coming Messiah, which Matthew refers to as a, a, a promise of the prophets, a theme that is carried out and fulfilled in verse 23. There's seen, we see it lots of places, but one of the most notable is from Isaiah's description of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where he writes this, For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so by having Jesus' family settle in this obscure Nowheresville town, God fulfills his promise spoken of through the prophets, and particularly the one we see in Isaiah, that he will be this obscure, humble, humble coming Messiah. Okay. But here's the thing, and maybe you've been thinking of this the whole time I've been talking as well. Maybe you're just being nice and charitable, but I'd be thinking it myself if I was listening to this message. Uh, when you look at everything Matthew has presented here in these three story vignettes, maybe what you're saying to yourself is, wow, I mean, I mean that's, that's, that's interesting. I, I, that's pretty cool, yeah, how, how, how all that came together in the end, but then at the same time, you're also thinking to yourself, but so what? <laughs> okay. What, what has any of that got to do with me today, 2020? And what I want you to realize and understand this morning is that for the most part, that was largely the response to Jesus' birth when all this was first taking place as well. Very same response. Even though, as, as Matthew has been giving us repeated examples here, in the coming of Jesus, we see promise after promise after promise of God spoken through his prophets being fulfilled, being completed and filled up in Jesus. Even though, as we saw last week, the chief priests, teachers of the law, they knew, they knew Bethlehem was where the Messiah was going to be born, and they're told a star signaling his birth is here. He, he's appeared and come, considering even knowing all of that. Who even bothers to show up to this long-promised Messiah's birth? Except, what, barn animals? A few ragtag, despised shepherds on a smoke break? And then, like a few years later, actually, Gentile, non-Jewish court astrologers from a Far Eastern land. That's it. That's it. A response, look at that, that's almost exactly the same as our response today. What's this got to do with me? Now yes, some like Herod see these promises being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and respond with fear, respond with violence, anxious to hold on to the rule of our lives and of our thrones. We don't want to have there be two kings, and we want to be the king. That's another way we can respond to the coming of God's promised king. But if you look around today, I think you'd agree that by far, 
the greater response to the one whose birth at Christmas is, is centered around, which ought to inspire awe and worship and celebration. The response instead is yawning indifference, barely able to look up from our cell phones or set down our eggnog lattes. Just like, hmm, interesting. Why? Why? Why is that? Well, I believe the reason is because of that last promise fulfillment that Matthew mentions in particular, that Jesus will be a Nazarene, which we now know what that means. For although God's redemptive history continues on through to this very day, yes, the real surprise of Christmas is the obscurity in which the King of Kings came. And then and today, that's not, a, that, that's not what anybody expects from a king. It's the surprise of Christmas. It's not what we're expecting. Like, just really think about what Matthew has presented to us already in these first two chapters of his gospel. All the promises of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, are finding their yes and amen in the coming of Jesus' promised king. And yet, surprise, he comes to two nobody, peop, nobody parents and on, under highly suspicious and scandalous circumstances, I might add. He's born into poverty, laid to rest in, in an animal trough in a barn, raised in obscurity, celebrated by almost nobody, and then basically just disappears for the next 25 years of his life. Is that what comes to your mind when you think about the arrival of, of a king to earth that you're going to celebrate and worship and submit your life to and come to in times when you're hurting and afraid and fearful that you're going to go to a king like that? You're going to look to somebody like that? And although some today, yes, still respond with violence and fear, the response of most to the fulfillment of God's promise in the coming of Jesus today is still the very same response that John lists at the beginning of his gospel to Jesus' coming, namely, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Just, where is he from? Nazareth? No. No, that can't be it. I'm not going to worship that king. And yet, as John goes on to tell us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In the same way that, that Jesus being adopted by Joseph is now brought into the line of David, we, through coming and bowing the knee before this king, are adopted into the family line of God. We become children of God. And so the one question I want to leave you with to consider this morning after all that Matthew has presented here in these first two chapters, and as you head into your own Christmas celebrations this coming week, is just this. Will you receive him? Will you receive this humble, obscure, lowly king who is actually the king of kings? Will you respond to him not with fear or indifference, but in humble worship of the king in whom all these promises of God are fulfilled and find their yes and amen? 
Because that's the thing. God has made the journey between promise made to promise fulfilled in the sending of Jesus. That's what Matthew's been working so hard to show us. He's, he's made the journey all the way from heaven to earth in order to complete promise made, promise fulfilled. And no, although he hasn't fulfilled those promises according to the, uh, the ways that we would do it, how we might have expected him to do it, he has still shown himself to be faithful to keep every one of those promises. And if he can keep those promises, I promise you, he can keep whatever promise he's made to you today as well. Will you trust him today? Will you put your trust in that king? Will you surrender the rule of your life, the reign of your life, and respond to him with the worship and the awe and the praise that he's due. Will you believe the witness of Matthew's evidence here and receive him today? I mean, what do we, what do we sing every year around this, around this message? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. It's Emmanuel. God is with us. And in response to that, the Lord is come. Let, let earth, more specifically, let us receive our King. Amen. Amen.